Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books, and check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. I would love to sort of have it come directly from the patients and family members that show up to their doctor and say, I just heard about palliative care and that sounds awesome. Like, why haven't you told me about this yet? Because for all the times that we hear when we do meet a patient, why wasn't I told about this sooner? I wish yeah. somebody told them about it sooner. Yeah. And so if it's not going to be their healthcare professionals, maybe it can be some sort of ad campaign or some sort of just general, yeah. general public education. That was Dr. Jared Rubenstein, a pediatric palliative care doctor and medical educator from Houston, Texas. He creates animated videos to provoke discussion around challenging topics in healthcare, especially palliative care. In this episode, we discuss how those videos connect with the upstream messages of the waiting room revolution and the ways we need to innovate education, not just for providers, but also for the public. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. All right. Well, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Amazing. I, I mean, you are a pediatric palliative care physician in the U.S., in Houston, um, but I but you're actually probably most well known for making videos um, on social media. So I thought if it's okay, we can start with that, with the video piece. Like, you're, it's animated videos about complex conversations and sort of done in a in a tongue-in-cheek way. I mean, I guess maybe you can describe the videos to our listeners if they haven't met you sure. online. Yeah, the, the videos are made with a, a animation program that makes sort of clunky animation and, and sort of robotic sounding voices. And my hope is that the people aren't turned off by the appearance of them. But then, if anything, people may be a little bit disarmed by that. And then you can get into a really serious conversation about it in one or two minutes. And I think you know, as someone that grew up on The Simpsons and South Park, I'm a big believer in the feeling that, you know, you can you can use animation, you can use humor, you can use some some sarcasm and analogy to have what I hope are really important conversations. And like I said, be a little disarming and, and use that to use the humor and use the animation in a way to, to open the door to something. So what got you started in doing that? And totally by accident. I, I think for me, I've, I've been interested for some years in the idea that, you know, as I'm sure you all know, our field is still misunderstood and there's still a lot of myth and misconception about it and really like the idea oh, of excuse doing... me not oh. here in Canada actually oh. no, that's not true we fixed it oh well, you'll have to you'll have to share your tips for that later because we, just we have yet to <laughs> <laughs> just kidding just <Yeah>. kibitzing <laughs> and so I, I I love the idea of um the having the public conversation about palliative care and sort of leaning into that and then um the video piece really started by accident I was just um coming back from rounds one day and had just done a new consult for a patient. And I think as, as I think we've all experienced the, the conversation leading up to the consult was, you know, I think this would be a really good patient for you to meet, but don't tell them about that your palliative care, maybe say something else because they'll be scared. And mm -hmm. I wish we could consult you more, but people aren't ready. And maybe you should just change the name of your team and sort of all of the tropes that we're used to hearing all the time. Mm -hmm. And then as I was walking back to the office that day, I just had the thought, you know, it, it feels sort of like a 
if a firefighter showed up to somebody's house on fire and the neighbor said, you know, don't go in. I don't want you to scare the family when they see a firefighter show up mm -hmm. to their house. And it just, because that's sort of how preposterous it felt. And mm -hmm. I remembered um, some years ago having seen little animations online with, you know, different medical specialties talking to each other and kind of arguing about things. And I thought, you know, mm -hmm. I wonder if that program still is out there. And I, I found it and and made this video and put it together. And that's what became the palliative care where the fire department, not the fire video. Mm -hmm. And I showed it to some colleagues at work and didn't think too much about it. And they said, oh, you know, you should share this with other people. So I put it out on Twitter and it surprisingly kind of went palliative care viral. <laughs> and I thought, oh, great, maybe people will have this conversation now and, and this will be that. And then um, the, the response to it was just so overwhelmingly positive and people saying, wow, it's so great to feel seen and heard. And I can't wait to see what other videos mm -hmm. there are. And at first I said, oh, you know, this, this is the one, like, I don't, this isn't a thing I do. I'm a, a mm -hmm. palliative care doctor and I teach people about palliative care, but I don't, I don't make videos. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, but, you know, maybe, maybe I could try it and maybe there are some others I could make. And that started what's been, I guess now maybe like a three or four year project. And I think there's mm -hmm. something like 50 or 60 videos now. And wow, it's been, it's been amazing. And it, it's been the, the best thing for me about it has been um, when I hear that people use them to teach other people or use them in lectures they give or use mm -hmm. them on rounds and really the, the collaborations I've made through it and the, the people mm -hmm. I've met through social media and the videos that I never would have met otherwise that now are lifelong friends and colleagues in the field and mm -hmm. helped me realize also that, you know, just, and I think what's cool about palliative care is that our skill set of helping people lean into hard topics is portable mm -hmm. outside of serious illness. And mm -hmm. so in being able to partner with other people has spun out sort of other video series. And so there's a few on gender equity. There's a few on mental health. It's so interesting. Disarm people like it's the battle, you know, <laughs> we have yeah. to disarm, disarm them. <laughs> but it is true because when we talk our talk, people get their dukes up, you know, they or their shield or their defenses. Um, and so we have to work through so many layers before we can actually we have to do such a dance to get through the crack um, and your cartoons or videos. Sorry, you called them videos. I said cartoon. Cartoons is, is good a, with me. I'm, okay. I'm good with, you know, they're, <laughs> they could be called whatever. But they're a way to break through those shields and, and come through the cracks and a vehicle for, um, you know, a more comfortable way to have these difficult discussions. I think it's incredible. Do you know one time someone told me when I was going into palliative care, the fellowship, the residency program, one of my preceptors said, oh, I can't believe you are going into that. You, you are going to have such a hard time. You are always joking and always like you're, you're, I used to be funny, Jared, like really funny. I, it got washed away, but I was really funny. And they thought, okay, that is going to be such a mismatch, you and your humor and palliative care. Um, so maybe I'll try to find that girl again. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And it's, I, I feel like then we're, we're kindred spirits now, because I, I feel like that that same conversation happens all the time. And there's always this conception that we're going to be sad, broken people because we work in palliative care. And I was, you know, by and large, we're, we're delightful people, people enjoy yeah. talking to us, we're fun, we have senses of humor. And it's not rare, even in pediatric palliative care in the mid in the middle of a consult for something lighthearted to happen. And, and you find yourself laughing with the patient and family, while at the same time, you're talking about things with incredible gravity. And, and I think, I think for a lot of people feeling like they can, they can bring their whole selves and be their whole selves and, mm -hmm. and have a safe space to laugh and cry and sort of have the whole, whole range of emotions with people mm -hmm. that are comfortable that I think is really important. 
Mm-hmm. You have to have a really good spidey sense about it, right? Like, and you really have to know your audience and um, you ha- it is an art <laughs> to infuse humor in these dark hours, but you seem to be Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think that the spidey sense is a good word for it. Or like, um, mm-hmm. I think the same sort of people feel about swearing that if the other person mm-hmm. does it first, then, you know, it's, it's a safe space. And I yeah. think humor is the same in a, in a, in a yeah. visit. If, if somebody else makes a joke, then it, it feels like it's, it's potentially a safe space to do it as mm-hmm. opposed to, I would never do one first if I wasn't sure that the, mm-hmm. the patient or family would feel like that was, mm-hmm. that resonated with their experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jared, it's amazing. I mean, some of these videos have been viewed hundreds of thousands of times and they're going viral. Um, But it seems that these are not just for social media, right? I mean, they are also education tools. So I'm curious, how do you use these videos for teaching residents and fellows? I think um, I'll often use them on when we're on rounds at the hospital and if we have some downtime or like if we're, if we're waiting to do a visit or waiting for an interpreter to come for a patient, we have a few minutes to wait. Um, I'll try to find one that's sort of relevant to what we've been talking about or um, mm-hmm. something that was that I did that was really powerful was I got consulted one time for a patient that um, the patient and family were starting to think about, you know, are we near enough to the end of life that we would think about stopping artificial nutrition and hydration. and you know how emotional and challenging conversation Mm -hmm. that can be. Mm -hmm. And um, I was working with a fellow in another field who'd said, you know, we were talking about and said, you know, I've never had any of these conversations before. And so we were kind of prepping for it. And with the goal that this trainee would be able to lead the conversation with me there together. And I actually, in talking about it, I I showed him the video that I was thrilled to partner with Catherine Mannix on to do Mm -hmm. the one about, um, stopping food and nutrition at the end of life Mm -hmm. and sort of the sentiment Mm -hmm. that, you know, food is love and how do we, how do we take that away? Mm -hmm. And we watched the video together and used it as sort of a talking point to then talk about ways to, to lay out the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the bedside and did the conversation together. And it was, it was really wonderful to see Mm -hmm. that the, the fellow in a different field was able to take that skill set and did a really Mm -hmm. lovely job with the conversation. Mm -hmm. Jared, you know, at Waiting Room Revolution, we are trying to move our messages of palliative care upstream and to destigmatize it in a way. So it's not just something that's saved for end of life. So I'm curious, what do you think about that? Part of what I, I, I dream about is a world where it's normal. And, and I think you know, that for all the conversation about myth and misconception of palliative care and fear of palliative care, I think what a lot of us have kind of suspected for years, and now the literature is borne out that there's certainly some of it in the general population, but actually a lot of it is projected from other medical professionals. Yes. And yeah. So I would love to sort of have it come directly from the patients and family members that show up to their doctor and say, I just heard about palliative care and that sounds awesome. Like, why haven't you told me about this yet? Because for all the times that we hear when we do meet a patient, why wasn't I told about this sooner? I wish yeah. somebody told them about it sooner. Yeah. And so if it's not going to be their healthcare professionals, maybe it can be some sort of ad campaign or some sort of just general yeah. general public education. And I think... Um, Another colleague that I've gotten to know again through these videos and, and now is a, is a lifelong friend is my friend Liz Salmi, who's someone that works for Open Notes, but also is a patient advocate and is someone um, living with an illness. And in the first time we partnered to make a video together, I had talked about, you know, really wanting to message to the general population and to the patient population. And I sort of showed her some content that I thought was for that. And she said, you know, is it okay if I tell you like, 
you're not actually, these aren't actually patient facing. These are still clinician facing. And I realized, you know, I was so in it that um, yeah. it was hard to, to be in the position of, of mm. the patient and making patient facing content. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's something that I, I've loved the opportunity to do is partner with people who are not, who are sort of in the other side of the healthcare world as healthcare mm-hmm. experiencers mm-hmm. who can help me sort of get that perspective and, and make content for people coming from that perspective. Cause I think yeah. that's, I think that's usually important. I, I love the idea. I, I think there's so much, so much in, in medicine, I think sort of has patients and physicians kind of at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're so on the same team, but I think don't always realize it. And I think mm-hmm. the ability to, to partner with people from, from that world and be, and be able to communicate and message and, and make sure that the messaging that I think I'm sending is actually a message that it's going to resonate with, with Mm -hmm. the general population has been really helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why we were so excited to talk with you because with the waiting room revolution in our attempts to go upstream, we heard that patients didn't want early palliative care. They thought it was giving up hope earlier or planning for death earlier, but they still wanted to be hopeful. So in our seven keys in our book, We were trying to teach people how to leech out a palliative approach without the labels. And we thought your skills in video making and the way you teach these skills and topics would be such a great addition to the revolution. And so in some ways, we're trying to recruit you as an ambassador to the revolution. Absolutely. I love that. And I'll, I even push back some on the whole, yeah, we, there's no question our culture is afraid of, of death and dying and doesn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But palliative care is helping people live their best life in the setting of an illness. Palliative care is having better control of their pain and symptoms. Palliative Mm -hmm. care is being able to plan for the future or not plan for the future if you just want to live in the moment. And Mm -hmm. palliative care is helping people better understand what's happening in the setting of their illness because doctors are notoriously not great at communicating what's happening to people in their illness. Yeah. All of that's odd. Like there, I don't, there, there can't be anything scary about that. I I think all all of that is just just, the word. Yeah. And so, and I, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the word, there, the data that I've seen is pretty consistent that about 70% of people have never heard the word. Mm-hmm. And so I would push back on anyone to say, you can't be afraid of something that you've never heard of. You, mm-hmm. if any, at best, you're neutral mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It, it doesn't exist in your mind yet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then when you tell people about palliative care and read some of the practice definitions of it, people are like, oh, that sounds great. I'd do that. Mm-hmm. And the barriers have been crossed in both um, in adult and in pediatrics. The data says that you know, when, when people hear about it, they think it sounds great. And there was a, a really cool study that was done in, in pediatrics in, in this country at um, St. Jude by uh, Dina Levine and her team, where they mm-hmm. sort of mirrored the adult studies of saying, have you heard of palliative care? Yes or no. Um, then if you haven't, let me tell you about what it is. And the question was, would you be interested in having the palliative care team involved early in your child's cancer care? And they asked the child mm-hmm. and the parent. Most people said, yeah, that sounds great. And mm-hmm. then they did a cool third part where they said, also palliative care teams take care of children at the end of life. Does that change your willingness to have the team involved? And some people were spooked and said, actually, that sounds a little scary. I don't want to do it. But an even bigger Mm -hmm. percentage said, you know, that sounds really important. I hope we don't get there. But if we do get Mm -hmm. there, I would really want to have this team. And so Mm -hmm. I think all of that data, both in adult and peds, says that, you know, people either haven't heard of palliative care or when they have heard of it, most people think it sounds good. And then there's some other data in in the adult world where they, they saw that when, for the people that did have negative preconceived notions and sort of dug and tried to find out where they came from, it was projected mm-hmm. by other healthcare workers. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I always push back on the palliative care scary because I think, I think palliative care is scarier to other healthcare workers than it is to the average person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, um, I think upstream education, like 
y'all are doing with the book, I think, I think is huge. And, and I, I think mm-hmm. other than talking about death, which certainly and understandably scares people, mm-hmm. I think the rest of it can just be a huge value add to people. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But, but still we can't, and I totally agree with you. Um, but if we tell people, oh, this is what palliative care is. It is human centered. It is um, balancing hope and planning and, you know, covering all angles and the what ifs and whatever. And they say, oh yeah, I would really like that. Encouraging them to go early in their illness, to seek that out from the healthcare system. They will, they will come up um, against a roadblock because they hear things like, oh, don't, you don't have, we're not, not there yet. yet. Yeah, we're yeah. not there yet. There's so many things we could do. Don't say, you know, you, we don't need to talk about that now. So they get shut down. So again, even if we empower citizens of the world to talk the P word and come to the healthcare ask, ask healthcare system asking for it, it, it they're still going to be silenced. So, yeah. so it, Sienna and I totally agree with you, Jared, completely. But until such a time that we can do that, we felt there is a crisis to get something out there that um, does isn't so in your face p word. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, I, I love it. And, you know, it's really interesting, and I think you're the right person to ask this because the idea of palliative care, the specialty, um, and how does that, particularly in the U.S. with the hospice Medicare benefit, and you have you know great death educators like Hospice News Julie on TikTok talking about hospice care versus palliative care. And I wonder like how you um, untangle that for the general public, like the difference between palliative care, the specialty, um, palliative care, the approach, which is what we've been really trying to explain, which is that could be applied all throughout the journey, but hospice care as a benefit and you know the care you get from hospice nurses is actually something very specific and related to insurance. So I don't know, in in when you have this conversation with with the, you know, with your patients and families, like how do you sort of explain the difference? Yeah, no, that's a great question because you're right. I think I think the difference is always challenging. And then in this country, where where hospice is extra complicated because it's a it's an or it's a group of organizations. It's a philosophy of healthcare. It is an insurance benefit. It, it gets extra confusing. And I for sure did not understand hospice until I was a palliative care fellow and started going on the hospital. Like I, I think I think it's just such a it's such a thing that is not understood and not seen unless you've had personal experience with it. Mm-hmm. Um. And so for me, the sort of the simple way that I, I think about it and explain it to people is that palliative care, the, the care in general is sort of the umbrella and that palliative care is, you know, how we take care of people and, and how we focus on quality of life and shared decision making and, and getting goal concordant care for anyone with a serious illness. And then hospice under that umbrella is the way that we provide palliative care to people at home who are near the end of their life. And so they're they're very much related. And I think all all hospice is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. And I think that the second part of the question, I guess I, I think of it is the way we think about a lot of other specialties that, you know, there's primary level palliative care and subspecialty level palliative care. And, and my hope is always that, you know, everyone who practices medicine has some way to, to integrate elements of palliative care. And so making making their care person-centric and and really learning about personhood and and learning about, you know, how to how to talk to somebody about their values and hopes and fears and that that's integrated into all the healthcare. And then for people that have the most challenging pain and symptoms or people that have the most challenging decision process or family dynamics mm-hmm. or or um, illness course, you bring in the subspecialist palliative care people to help navigate mm-hmm. that the same way that, you know, in 
in pediatrics, the, you know, there is pediatricians used to do listen to all the heart stuff and, and figure out heart murmurs and, and navigate cardiology on their own because there weren't a lot of pediatric cardiologists. And then pediatric mm -hmm. cardiologists came on the scene and general pediatrician said, awesome, let's send all our kids with any kind of heart murmurs or any kind of heart questions to the cardiologist. Mm -hmm. And then the cardiologist had to say, great, you know, we're happy to see kids, but let's, let's maybe swing the pendulum back to the middle somewhere where we can mm -hmm. help you learn what, what we expect you to do as a generalist and what, what I should do as a specialist. And I think that mm -hmm. model is, is really similar to palliative care. Yeah, in a way, we have um, built ourselves a kingdom, a specialty, and in doing so, uh, we have inadvertently excused other clinicians from thinking they do it. And so we're sort of digging our way out of that um, problem right now, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and in Canada, and I don't know about the USA, uh, learning palliative care is not a mandatory part of medical school. There are some medical schools that have a little bit of real estate in palliative care, like an hour lecture, two hour lecture, but really, um, you know, it is so sorely missing. And yeah. so it's really very similar to here. Yeah. So, I mean, what other specialty does that happen where, you know, you're trying to dig your way out of being solely a specialty but we still don't have the curriculum in place. So really until we solve that problem, we really can't expect just already graduated people to pick up the torch, right? They're busy learning their practice, whatever. It, it really needs to be changed at the curriculum level. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for something that, you know, in, in medical school, we all do all these rotations for things that not everyone's going to experience. Like not everyone in their life will have surgery, but we all do a surgery rotation. Not everyone in their life will have a baby, but we all do an OB rotation, mm -hmm. but everyone will, will have a serious illness and everyone will yeah. die at some point. And yeah. almost nobody does a palliative care rotation. Yeah. And you know, you'll know that we've made it when they don't have to come to palliative care to learn how to do that. They should, internal medicine residents should be seeing it role modeled by their own staff. Cardiology residents should be seeing it role modeled pediatric residents by their own pediatric faculty that really, you know, right now, okay, come to us, we'll show you how to do it in palliative care. But eventually we also need to faculty develop so that, you know, people see it happening in their real world, as opposed to this fake rotation with a palliative care specialty team, because then they still only see it as a specialty. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I, I think anyway, that's a great point. And I, I digress. Like no, I, th I think it's a, a really important point. And I think like most paradigm shifts, it'll be something that changes sort slowly. of apparently <laughs> suddenly, but slowly when the, 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 if we, if we can move education upstream enough, and then all of a sudden the generation of doctors that doesn't yeah. support or believe or understand palliative care will retire. And then yeah. all of a sudden, all of the, the new generation will, will already know it because hopefully yeah. it's been integrated and taught upstream enough. Yes. So Jared, everything you've been saying has, is, is, you know, has resonated with us, um, you know, and things and themes that we've talked about in other podcasts, but you're also unique because you are a pediatric palliative care physician. So what about your work working with sick kids and, and the families as well makes your job different than say, you know, maybe a typical palliative care specialist So probably is working with, you know, I guess people of all ages, but mostly probably people, older adults for the most part, I'm guessing. Yeah. So, I mean, on, on the one hand, not a lot, and on the other hand, tons. And so I think mm -hmm. for, on the one hand, palliative care, I think is palliative care. And, and 
you know, the conversations are similar, the, the medicines are the same, the, the conversational strategies are the same, but often instead of talking with a patient and their spouse or adult children, we're talking with a patient and their parents or just the parents if it's a, mm-hmm. a preferable or nonverbal child. But, um, and so a lot of that I think is the same. I, I think what's different and one of the things that's really wonderful is that I know not all adults have somebody there advocating for them. And mm-hmm. one of the great things about pediatrics is that almost always mm-hmm. our patients have wonderful advocates that know everything about them, that know them incredibly well, that are there advocating for them and and true partners in the care that I know yes. not all adults have. And so that's something that's wonderful about pediatrics. Mm-hmm. I think one difference that that I think is ch- a challenge is that, you know, we as a, a culture, at least as I'll speak for as an American culture, don't do a great job of empowering older children, adolescents, young adults to have a voice in their care and be able to talk about the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And we know that they feel it and we know that they think it and we know that they want to, but it sometimes mm-hmm. feels like there's a conspiracy between all coming from a good place, but between um, other healthcare workers and the parents to protect the children from these conversations. And mm-hmm. we we see these dynamics where the parents sitting sadly on one side of the room because they know bad things are happening, but aren't talking to their kid about them. And we see the Mm -hmm. kid sitting on the other side of the room who knows bad things are happening, but Mm -hmm. they're not being given permission to talk about it. And they're Mm -hmm. getting nonverbal cues that, wow, my, my parents seem really upset about something. And all the doctors that come in here seem really upset. There Mm -hmm. must be something bad happening that we're not talking about. And I'm not going to rock the boat and talk about it. And Mm -hmm. the parent tries to protect the kid because their parent or the kid tries to protect the parent because they see their parent doesn't want to talk about it and Mm -hmm. their parents trying to protect the kid and you end up just with people kind of sitting on opposite sides that you wish you could just sort of get them together and and Mm -hmm. give them permission to talk about it and I think Mm -hmm. in the best case we can do that and and Mm -hmm. sort of cross that bridge and get them to talk but I think there's Mm -hmm. still I I think we're still not as good as I wish we were at engaging children and and adolescents and young adults in the decisions Mm -hmm. about their care. Mm -hmm. Mm Um, I love what you said about the families are such an integral part of the team, right? Uh, in pediatrics, there's um, it's so obvious, right? Because they have been, some of these kids have had whatever they have from very early on in life. So they've had whatever for years and years and years. So the family has been the care team. Um, and so we don't do a good job of that in the adult world. Uh, you know, the the family ends up being the chauffeur or, you know, just this nice person sitting over in that chair who we're sort of ignoring, <laughs> you know, because we don't want to open that can of worms because we, you know, it's just, so I think that that's, I think you guys have a lot to role model to the rest of healthcare in the way that you work with and negotiate with uh, families, like the families are a part of the unit of care, and they're also a part of the care team. They straddle both. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And yeah. We always, oh, it, it, we always say, and it, it feels trite, but we really mean it that we say, you know, we we may be the medical experts, but you're the experts in your own child, and and having yeah. them there and being activated part. And like, I love yeah. starting my new consults after I talk about, you know, what palliative care is and answer questions everyone has this little computer they carry around in their pocket all the time now. And I'll say, you know, mm-hmm. I, I only get to see your child when they're sick and not at their best. Like, can you show me some pictures and videos of what they're like at home? Mm-hmm. And it, it's wonderful to get a sense. I mean, everyone loves showing pictures of their kids. So it's, it's mm-hmm. rapport building. It's selfishly nice for us because we get a, to see a, a happy kid mm-hmm. at home doing their mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But I think particularly for, for 
neurodiverse kids or medically complex kids that may not have a typical baseline, we're not really good at knowing what that baseline is from how we yeah. see them in the hospital. And so yeah. it's, I think we always say, you know, if pictures worth a thousand words, a video at mm-hmm. home is worth mm-hmm. a million and, mm-hmm. and getting to see what somebody's like, um, it, it gives us a sense of their personhood and, and connection, but it also mm-hmm. lets us know their baseline and lets us frame that to parents and say, you know, mm-hmm. great, this is, thanks so much for sharing that. Now we know what we're trying to work back to. Mm-hmm. And it can also kind of be a breadcrumb that you scatter later and come back to that, you know, if things are changing and you might not be able to get back there, you could say, you know, I remember when you showed me that video of how things mm-hmm. were before, I'm worried mm-hmm. because of X, Y, Z that we might mm-hmm. not be able to get back there. Is it okay if we talk about that? Mm-hmm. And as a way to sort of frame the new baseline relative to now what mm-hmm. you sort of more concretely know about the old one. Mm-hmm. So Jared, you used the word personhood um, earlier, and I know you've been trying to adapt um, dignity therapy for kids. That's one of your, your projects. Can you tell us more about that? What is dignity sure. therapy? In- yeah. yeah. So dignity therapy, um, it's a program started by Harvey Chachanoff and, and his team in Canada, in Winnipeg. Um with the idea, it's sort of, it's under the umbrella of legacy work where it's um, working with people who are near the end of their lives and gives them the ability to have a recorded interview that's part life review, part sort of lessons for the next generation, um, part sort of things left unsaid and, and wisdom that then gets recorded, written down. The person has a chance to edit it and um, then it they get to see their their story as a physical document at the end when it's created. And then it becomes a, a legacy document after their death for, for their loved ones. And um, when we learned about it, um, a colleague and I, Taryn Schulke, who is the grief bereavement specialist on our team at the time, um, said, maybe maybe we could do this in pediatrics. And, and our team kindly sent us to, to the training course in Winnipeg, which was just, I've never had an experience like that. The three, day, the three days there was just this mind-blowing conference and um, just was so warm and welcoming, so educational and just so powerful that I think we came back saying, you know, we have to try to do this. And mm-hmm. um, we have been in the process of, of trying to roll it out at our institution. And um, we published our first case series a few years ago um, with um, really modifying it for adolescents and, and modifying it not much. And can, we found that adolescents were able to do the process the same as adults for the most part, although we found that they wanted to sort of tweak it in a very adolescent way. And a lot of them wanted mm-hmm. to put pictures of themselves in it or mm-hmm. art that they painted or, or sort of make it a more multimedia than, the, mm-hmm. than just the written document. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we wrote about at the end, and so it took, in our first three years of doing it, we were able to do a total of eight, which in part is, it's so not many. And, mm-hmm. and part of it is that it, it's a, it's a pretty labor intensive process yeah. to, to get the whole thing done, but a bigger part of it. And what we sort of wrote about in our discussion at the end was kind of a call to action. What I mentioned earlier is that we don't do a great job in pediatrics of allowing adolescents and young adults and, and older kids to have, be able to talk about the fact. And, you know, the, the dignity therapy creators use the term existential readiness, sort of saying in order to engage in dignity therapy, you have to be at the point where you're near the end of your life and able to engage in, in conversation and planning and, and discussion about the fact that you're near the end of your life. And we don't allow teenagers to do that very often because of that sort of that protectionism I was talking about earlier. And so um, part of the challenge is that we, we don't meet a lot of people in our work that are, that are appropriate for dignity therapy because they are not put in situations where they're able to talk about it or when they are, it is so, so close to the end of their life that now they're no longer to engage, able to engage in the process. And so it, it's work we're really passionate about, but have sort of struggled with with the ability to, to get a lot of them done in the pediatric world. But we're we're certainly going to keep trying. 
Yeah, no, I, it makes total sense. I mean, we obviously we've had Harvey on the show and, um, you know, we, we uh, you know, met him and glad to call him a friend. But I really think if you sort of put the lens of waiting room revolution onto some of his work, it would be that dignity therapy doesn't have to be medicalized. It can be the instructions can be put on the internet, like a build it yourself kit, like teenagers or or young adults can take charge of the whole process from beginning to end, I bet, like a like a school project that doesn't require actually, you know, there are parts of it that have value that aren't medical and most, and the legacy part of that. I mean, there are parts of like, what does this mean for my care and what do you need to know? But there are lots of it that is, this is what's important to me, mom and dad, and this is what I want you to know. And you know, these are the things that I want to say to the people that I care about. All of a lot, I mean, some of that really doesn't require a nudge from the health system at all and can be sort of um, like mm -hmm. you said, led and, and activated by they just need the permission and the invitation, yeah. really. Absolutely. I mean, I think in my mind there's parallels between like, you know, for all the people that say we should eulogize people at their birthdays instead of their funerals because they don't get to hear all the nice things people say about them until they're already dead. Mm -hmm. I think we should we should learn and celebrate people's personhood from the time they enter the medical system, not yeah. from the time that they're leaving. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Do you think that I know, I mean, the main association, like in Canada, we've been sort of trying to suss out you know, the conversation and the readiness for these kinds of ideas. But in America, at the American Association of Hospice Palliative Medicine, do you feel like the kinds of ideas that you're talking about, the kinds of things we're talking about, is there a readiness there as well? Or is this still sort of, um, I want to say fighting, but it's still sort of like kingdom building and, you know, desire to keep it as a specialty and we're, you know, that palliative care is still best done by specialists? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's, I think there's a both and philosophy that that we need specialists, like, I, I think, like, I push back on the, the thing I hear some people say that, you know, we want to, we want to work ourselves out of a job, like we want to get palliative, and I, I don't think, I don't think there's ever a worry that should happen, not because I'm not optimistic, we're going to create a great foundation of primary palliative care, but just like all other fields, there's no, you you can have both. You can have great primary palliative care everywhere and still have a need for specialists because some things are just hard. And as specialists, we are better at doing the thing we do than, than generalists, just like in any specialty. I, I think um, I think there's just a lot. I mean, I, I think there's a lot on people's plates and, and I think there's, there's conversations about improving pain and symptom management. I think there's conversations about um, advanced care planning. There's conversations about all these things that I think there's the, the, public facing and palliative care and the upstream messaging part, I think is is an element that's certainly talked about, but I think it's, it's one element among many. And I think there's those of us like me where that's the thing we're most passionate about, but we there's certainly passion in other places. And I think we need passion in other places too, but it's not like there's a, it's not like it's been determined this is the most important thing right now, mm -hmm. at least that I've heard. Mm -hmm. Well, let us tell you. Just kidding. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Hear it here first. <laughs> You know, what, I, what I'm sort of listening, of course, you know, to that project, but it threw out a theme throughout this whole um, conversation is palliative care clinicians are actually amazing educators because you're always educating the patients that you see every single time, all your colleagues, like, I, and I'm saying this in part to Sammy, because like the vision for the revolution is to create, you know, the book, the podcast was a tool. We have, you know, one pagers, but if we made little cards and we had workshops, like people like Jared and others are, you know, would know how to, or can help us to make excellent workshops that can change behavior. Cause like, mm -hmm. it is about changing the way people talk about things um, and not just referring to a specialist earlier, but uh, 
doing the ABCs of palliative care, the primary palliative care, because I don't think that's well role model. Yeah, like it isn't, we are not the revolution. The revolution is this information belonging to patients and families. But I think people like yourself know this and can think of creative ways or better ways to teach it to others. That's what I think is the is the future vision. Yeah, so. I mean, I love that idea. I think there's three things that palliative care people do really well. Like you mentioned, edu- I, think, I think a lot of us are good educators because we have to do so much of that in the work because by definition, for all the reasons we've talked about, it's something that mm-hmm. still needs a lot more education around it. Mm-hmm. I think we're really good communicators because of the training. And I think because of our work, we're good at leaning into discomfort. And, and I mm-hmm. think those three skills are portable to so many things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, it, it's made me really proud to be in this field and seeing other colleagues in the field that are doing projects about other sort of tangentially related to palliative care things mm-hmm. because of those three things that I think a lot of us have and have been taught to us in this work. And, and it's, mm-hmm. been, it's been awesome. It's made me proud to be a palliative care person. Jared, we're almost out of time. Is there any advice you have for patients and families that you would like to offer? Yeah, I think I think lean into palliative care. I think the for all of the things that that are not ideal about healthcare, I, I I really believe that palliative care can make a lot of them better, and that palliative care teams can be a partner for you as you go through your illness journey. But Jared, I was gonna I was gonna say that you know what I think all the work you're doing is is you are in the revolution. You're doing the rev, you are the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of the waiting revolution, like that's why we're so excited to have you on the show because yeah, well, without without labeling it, uh, where um, you are educating upstream and breaking mm-hmm. down the barriers and improving patient care. So mm-hmm. um, so welcome to the revolution, and it was so great to meet you. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, thanks. I'm honored to be part of it, and and I love y'all's work, and I'm excited to read the book, and and thanks so much for having me. It's been it's been a delight to talk to y'all. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsap.